Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? It's time for the tech news for Thursday, October 6th, 2022. And I mentioned this first item briefly in yesterday's episode, but on Tuesday, after I had already submitted my news episode for the day, so this is the height of rudeness, Elon Musk went ahead and switched gears yet again. Actually, to be fair, he did that on Monday, but the news broke on Tuesday. And what I mean by all this takes us back to the sprawling, chaotic, and messy Twitter acquisition. All right, let's get a previously on segment in here to really kind of summarize what has been going on with this whole saga. Back in April 2022, Though at this point, it feels like it happened an eternity ago. Elon Musk revealed that he had purchased, uh, let me see, I think the technical term is a metric buttload of Twitter stock, like just under 10%. 
This was enough to merit an invitation to join Twitter's board of directors, and Musk considered doing that. But then he saw in the fine print that if he did join the board of directors, he would have to agree to a limit on how much stock he could own. Now, whether Musk was already considering buying Twitter outright, I don't know. But at some point, it became clear that that was what he decided he wanted to do. So Musk then goes on to make an offer on Twitter to buy out all existing stock at $54.20 per share, which would bring the total cost of acquisition to around $44 billion with a B dollars. Musk then went about securing financing for this deal, which included meeting with investors who would put up some of the cash to fund it, and also banks that would loan out more money against Musk's considerable personal assets. Oh, and um, one really important part of this initial agreement is that Musk agreed to waive due diligence, which I think a ton of folks have said was a curious strategy, which that's what the kind people are saying. Others are saying it was just plain dumb. You wouldn't agree to buy a house without first having an inspector walk through and make sure, you know, the foundation is solid and all that kind of stuff. But things seem to be set in motion for a Musk acquisition of Twitter. The board of directors were happy with this idea. Uh, There was the requirement to hold a shareholder vote to see if shareholders agreed, and that didn't happen until this past September. But ultimately, shareholders voted in favor of that too. However, in July, so not that long after the wheels were in motion, Musk appeared to have second thoughts about this acquisition. And there's been a lot of speculation about this. Uh, Musk was arguing that Twitter had misrepresented its value at the early negotiations, and he claimed that the platform was absolutely riddled with bot accounts. Twitter claimed that based upon its own process, bots made up less than 5% of all monetizable accounts. Musk argued that it was way, way more than that, possibly as much as 90%, which seems absolutely unrealistic to me. But then I also think the less than 5% number is at least hard to believe. It might be true, but it's hard to believe. Lots of folks suggested a hypothesis that the financial downturn that we've seen this year meant that Musk's own assets were worth way less than what they had been when he first made the offer, and that it was possible that he was also starting to hit some resistance with financing as a result of this. Plus, Twitter itself started to look like a less valuable purchase, helped in no small part by the fact that Musk himself was slagging off Twitter pretty much at every opportunity. And you might say, huh, that seems weird that you would badmouth something you were planning on buying since you'd actually be creating a larger gap between the price you had agreed to pay and the value of the thing you were buying, but then you're not the world's richest man, right? You just don't see the big picture. Anyway, Twitter filed a lawsuit against Musk in an effort to force him to go through with the acquisition. Twitter was arguing that the deal Musk signed didn't leave him the option to just back out. And that's true. Musk can't back out of the deal unless certain specific criteria are met. For example, if Musk could legally prove that Twitter purposefully misrepresented its value to a significant degree, 
he could potentially walk out, out of this deal. Uh, the details get a little more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. But even then, Musk would still have to cough up a billion dollars just to walk away. Twitter's lawsuit is set to go to court on October 17th, so it's getting here soon. Musk's legal team had tried to push for a later date. They wanted it to happen as late as early 2023, but the judge wasn't having it. Twitter was arguing for it to be earlier, in fact, so the October date, in some respect, was kind of a compromise between the two. Now, the judge has largely been siding with Twitter on pretrial decisions, and that kind of brings us up to this week's news. On Monday, Musk filed a letter with the Securities and Exchange Commission and with Twitter recommitting himself to acquiring Twitter at the agreed-upon terms that were made way back in April of this year. But he did ask that this happen uh, on a couple of preconditions. One of those conditions is that if his financing falls through, he would be allowed to pay the billion-dollar penalty and then walk away. The other condition is that Twitter could please drop its lawsuit, please, uh, the lawsuit was starting to look like it was going to get real ugly for all involved. In fact, not starting. The, the lawsuit was clearly going to be ugly for both Elon Musk and for Twitter. Uh, already, Elon Musk's personal text messages have been entered into the court uh, pre-trial proceedings, which does not paint a good picture. Twitter's dirty laundry is ready to be put on display. Plus, uh, the pretrial stuff may have indicated to Musk's legal team that the chances of winning the case were a wee bit on the slim side. And that would mean that if Musk lost the legal battle, he would still have to acquire the company anyway. Like, his punishment is he has to go through the deal that he already agreed to do. Now, so far, Twitter has not filed for a stay in court action. And it's kind of understandable because I feel like if Twitter did drop the case entirely, they might not trust that Elon Musk will follow through on his statement that he is, in fact, going to acquire the company. However, Musk was originally scheduled to sit for a deposition today, and that has been postponed. So that part has been delayed, at least temporarily. Also, Reuters reports that some banks have held talks with Musk about financing back in the summer, but had since backed out. Uh, so it's not entirely clear where all the different financing is coming from. Uh, the ones that are remaining in place are in a potentially really tough position because it's an economically risky time for banks to get involved in large debt financing transactions. So this could mean that the banks that are still involved in this are in danger of losing a uh, another buttload of money. So what I'm saying is that this deal is not a sure thing. It looks like it's heading toward Elon Musk acquiring Twitter. That seems to be where we are headed, but the details are still a bit fuzzy. Um, oh, we also heard that before all of this, Musk had been holding some talks with Twitter in an attempt to negotiate a lower price than the one he had previously agreed to. But you know, when the ink is dry on the contract, it's pretty hard to come up with a convincing argument to get the seller to reduce the price. Anyway, now we are all caught up uh, until later today, probably, in which case I'll have to do another update next week. Well, I might as well put this story next because we're already talking about Elon Musk. Tesla 
released an announcement stating that it will be shifting to a camera-only approach in its driver assist technology. That means the company is phasing out stuff like ultrasonic sensors. It had already uh, taken out things like, like LiDAR. So this is Tesla stripping out some of the technologies it uses for computer vision, really, is what it comes down to. Now, the ultrasonic sensors were mostly used for stuff like parking assist and collision prevention. And it's really interesting to me because generally speaking, the trend you see in autonomous vehicle companies goes the opposite way. And by that, I mean most companies that are working in that field are really building out a robust suite of technologies to support computer vision. They're not relying on a single one, but a a whole array of different array is almost a pun, but a whole array of different technologies to try and provide computer vision for these complicated autonomous systems. Tesla says, no, we're just going to go pure optical camera. We're going to, we're going to simplify things. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a reversal of what everyone else is doing. As Tesla does this, the company says drivers should expect certain features Uh, to be unavailable at first when they purchase a new Tesla that is camera only. So those features include stuff like Park Assist, uh, Summon, where you get your car to magically drive up to wherever you are. Auto Park is another one. So these kind of things that the ultrasonic sensor was specifically designed to handle, you know, to, to maneuver a car without having it bump into stuff that's close by, those are the things that will not be available initially as Tesla moves to this camera-only approach. Now, the company claims that the features will return, but it'll take time because the company has to ensure that the camera-only version can complete these tasks as reliably and as safely as earlier Tesla models that had ultrasonic sensors. Now, I imagine this move could bring down the cost of production of the vehicles. They won't need as many different components So it'll probably mean that making a Tesla vehicle will be less expensive, which could mean that we'll see reduced sticker prices on future Teslas. But with so many complex economic factors at play, I wouldn't count on that just because we have other things like, you know, inflation, recessions, semiconductor shortages, all these kind of things play into that. So I'm not saying that the Teslas next year are going to be cheaper than the ones this year. Okay, I've got a lot more stories that have nothing to do with Elon Musk coming up, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. 
your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back. On Tuesday, a fire in Amazon's JFK 8 warehouse in New York temporarily shut down operations. Amazon sent the day shift home with pay while working with the fire department, uh, which Amazon says certified the building as safe not too long after getting the fire put out. And then they had the night shift come on as per normal. And when the night shift got there, some workers reported that there were still areas of the warehouse that had enough smoke to cause problems. You know, like it was hard to breathe, that kind of thing. Now, this is the same Amazon warehouse that voted to unionize earlier this year. Uh, That's something that Amazon has yet to formally recognize, although the National Labor Relations Board here in the U.S. has sided with the Amazon workers on this one. And about 50 workers staged a walkout in protest of being told to work in an environment that they felt was inherently unsafe. Amazon has subsequently suspended those workers with pay. Now, I think that's an interesting choice, considering how other Amazon facilities are also getting close to holding votes on unionization, because I feel like this kind of press is more likely to encourage employees to organize into a union, which obviously Amazon does not want to have happen. So making a choice like this seems to fuel the movements to organize. Anyway, Amazon is saying it's investigating the matter 
and that it's going to resolve the suspensions one way or another once that investigation is complete. A jury has found Uber's former chief security officer guilty of attempting to cover up a massive hacker intrusion into Uber's systems. All right, let's get some backstory on this. So back in 2015, Joseph Sullivan became the chief security officer for Uber. Uh, He would actually leave Uber in 2018. He would start to work over at Cloudflare in the same sort of role. Now, a year before Sullivan came to Uber in 2014, hackers penetrated Uber systems and they accessed databases containing personal information for approximately 50,000 Uber users and drivers. Uber reported this to the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, and this happened all shortly before Sullivan even joined the company. But the FTC investigated Uber's security systems and processes and essentially said, yo, if this ever happens to you, you need to let us know stat. Now, this was the environment into which Sullivan stepped as the new CSO. All right, so in 2016, a second hacker attack, this one way bigger in scope, hit Uber. The hackers accessed systems that contained data on around 57 million Uber users and drivers. It included more than half a million driver license numbers along with other information. Now, the FTC had told Uber that the company has to report these kinds of intrusions promptly, considering the massive effect they can have on millions of people. But Sullivan allegedly chose to cover the whole thing up. Oh, and this hack happened less than two weeks after Sullivan had just appeared before the FTC to give an update on Uber's security systems and practices. So Sullivan had just recently reassured the FTC that Uber's strategy was up to date. Then he found out that Uber was hit by this massive hacker intrusion. Then he decided to cover it up. Further, Uber would later pay the hackers $100,000 in cryptocurrency, because the hackers claimed they would delete the information they stole only if they were paid a ransom. Uber even found out the identities of a couple of those hackers and convinced them to sign non-disclosure agreements about the breach. So instead of alerting authorities to these people, they're like, hey, don't talk about this ever, all right? Sign this deal, you'll get your money, don't ever talk about it. Meanwhile, These hackers were targeting other companies using very similar approaches to what worked with Uber. So the FTC argued that what Sullivan was effectively doing was covering for criminals who were continuing to perpetuate digital crimes while also disguising the fact that Uber had been hit by this. The whole thing went to trial, and as I said, a jury found Sullivan guilty of a couple of different charges, namely obstruction of justice and one called misprision of felony. I was completely unfamiliar with that phrase, but it means that he knew that a federal felony had been perpetrated, and then he took steps to conceal that felony. While he was found guilty, he has yet to be sentenced. He could potentially face up to five years in prison for the obstruction charge and three years for the misprision charge. Fun fact, though, before he started working in security roles for tech companies, Sullivan was a lawyer with the Department of Justice. Oh, how the turns have tabled. Yesterday, Intel announced it is getting closer to a process that would allow the company to scale up quantum computer production. 
specifically chips for quantum computers, using a very similar approach to how it designs chips for classical computers. Now, I've talked about quantum computing before, how a sufficiently powerful quantum computer paired with the right algorithm or program could potentially solve very tricky computational problems in a fraction of the amount of time it would take a classical computer to do that same task. Now, this is not true for all computational tasks, mind you. There are some things that a classical computer can do much more efficiently than your typical quantum computer, unless you were somehow able to build a truly massive quantum computer that could compete with a classical computer for those tasks, which would be very, very hard to do. For a subset of computational problems, however, including ones that relate to our current encryption practices, a quantum computer could potentially cause massive disruption. It's possible that with a powerful enough quantum computer and with the right algorithm, you could decrypt pretty much anything that has ever been encrypted in a short amount of time. No more secrets, in other words. So... This has pushed research facilities and academic institutions and various companies to work on developing the next generation of encryption tools that would be able to withstand this kind of computational approach. Anyway, for a long time, all of this was largely in the realm of the theoretical because early quantum computers were pretty puny. And they were more of a demonstration of the principles of quantum computing as opposed to a practical implementation. And scaling these quantum computers is really hard to do. It's hard to build more and more powerful quantum computers. It does happen, but it's a very big challenge. They are incredibly expensive machines to build and operate, and it's very, very easy for stuff to go wrong. But Intel's announcement indicates that this theoretical reality may soon manifest as real reality and not too long from now. Granted, for all of this to really be a problem, you also have to develop those algorithms or, you know, series of instructions that a quantum computer would follow to carry out a task like decrypting stuff that we would otherwise think of as being practically untouchable. It's not like you build a quantum computer and it magically can decrypt things. You have to design an algorithm that effectively leads the quantum computer to do this, but there are people who are working on those algorithms and improving them all the time. It's just that you have to marry that with a quantum computer of sufficient power to make it actually do the thing you want it to do. But this really does mean we're on the precipice of an enormous transformation in digital communication and encryption. And that's just one possible quantum computing application. There are lots of others. So very exciting also, you know, notably a little scary because of the implications for things like encryption and the idea that with the right machine and algorithm, all stuff that previously we thought of as being private and safe and locked away isn't. Uh, so that that is concerning. But yeah, still also really exciting that this is happening and hopefully things will turn out okay. All right, we're going to take another quick break while I uh, calm myself down. And we'll be back to conclude this news episode with a few more stories. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, while looking at news articles for this episode, I came across a headline titled Social Media Use Linked to Developing Depression Regardless of Personality. Now, that headline reinforces some preconceived ideas of my own, and it also mirrors my own personal experience, so it seems to reinforce my anecdotal experience. So my first reaction to this headline was, well, of course, I'll go ahead and cover this, but I mean, of course it does. However, then I thought, hang on, I just did an episode about critical thinking. I should use some critical thinking. I should really read about how this study was performed and what it concluded. 
And once I did that, and I, to be clear, I just read the press release. I have yet to read the full study. I haven't taken enough time to do that yet. But even just reading the press release, I tempered my reaction significantly. Now, this is not to say that I think the headline is necessarily inaccurate, but rather that I have more questions. And I feel like there's some big gaps in the the reasoning here. Anyway, a group of researchers from the University of Arkansas, Oregon State University, University of Alabama, a couple of others, they took a sample of 1,000 U.S. adults between 18 and 30 years old. Uh, Actually, that sample was taken back in 2018, so this is four-year-old data. That's one thing we got to keep in mind. And they looked to see how depression correlated both with social media use as well with certain personality traits. Like, are people who express certain types of personalities more likely to be depressed if they use social media? That was kind of the question. Now, the press release says, quote, for each personality trait, social media use was strongly associated with the development of depression, end quote. Now, that phrase has some wiggle room in it, right? Strongly associated doesn't necessarily mean there's a causal relationship there, right? That you have an association, but it doesn't mean that one causes the other. Uh, But in another part of the press release, it says, quote, those with high neuroticism were twice as likely to develop depression than those with low neuroticism when using more than 300 minutes of social media per day, end quote. Y'all, that better be a typo. 300 minutes of social media per day? 300 minutes is five hours. That is a lot of time on social media. I mean, I did a cursory search to find out how much the average person spends on social media in a day. The number I kept seeing was 147 minutes. This was on sites like Statista, which some people have issues with. Uh, But I've seen it reported in a couple different places. Of course, they could all be getting their data from the same source. But still, 147 minutes is less than half of 300 minutes, right? So from what I was seeing, the average person spends less than half that amount of time. So if you're spending 300 minutes (laughs) of time per day on social media, you are well outside the norm. Also, we should point out that according to these sites that are saying 147 minutes is average, that's an increase of two minutes over 2021. So in other words, this keeping in mind that the data we're looking at in this study is four years old, presumably the average amount of time spent on social media back in 2018 was significantly lower than 147 minutes. So 300 is a crazy outlier is what I'm saying. And I'm also saying If you're spending twice as much time as the average person on social media, maybe there's another factor at play that's contributing both to your depression and the amount of time you're spending online. Also, I should point out, 1,000 people, that's a very, very small sample size. It's hard to draw broad conclusions on such a small sample. Now, none of this is to say that the research is inherently bad or that the researchers all came to faulty conclusions. It's just that based on the press release, I I can't really see any kind of causal link between social media use and depression. This isn't to say there's not a link. There might be. I just don't see it being pointed out in this, this study based on the press release. In fact, I could argue, well, what if the causal link goes the other way? What if it's not using social media leads to depression? What if 
having depression leads to an over-reliance on social media. That kind of gets back to that idea of the strong association, right? That could be a causal link that goes in a different direction. It could just be a correlation. So I don't feel like you can draw any firm conclusions about this, even though the press release goes on to say that people should be cutting back on the amount of time they spend on social media. I also think that. I just don't think this study supports that argument, at least not not with any real evidence. It just seems to confirm feelings we have about it. I do think that it shows that we need a better designed, larger scale study to really look into this. Also, to acknowledge the fact that these kind of studies are inherently difficult to do. It is so hard to control for various variables that can affect things like depression that are outside the scope of the study. And because of that, it is very difficult to draw any sort of firm conclusion. So the whole reason I said this was, again, to once again reinforce the idea critical thinking is important, especially when you encounter things that reaffirm your your previously held biases. Because it happened to me this morning, and then I took a moment and started asking questions. Again, maybe it's all absolutely perfectly accurate. There's just some gaps there in the reasoning, but you can't say for sure one way or the other, which is why I go on tirades like this. All right, moving on. Earlier this week, the UK government announced plans to build a prototype fusion reactor on the site of a decommissioned coal mine and to have it up and running by 2040. Now, the specific approach the UK is taking is the spherical tokamak for energy production, or STEP, uh, a tokamak is a machine that can generate incredibly powerful magnetic fields meant to contain plasmas. Uh, this is in a donut shape called a torus. And the purpose of a tokamak is to essentially force superheated atoms, which are moving like crazy otherwise, but forcing these, these really fast-moving atoms to come into very close contact with one another so that they fuse into a heavier atom and release a, a, an enormous amount of energy in the process. So fusion, if we can get it to work, would absolutely transform our approach to energy. Uh, fusion does not have the same dangers and drawbacks as nuclear fission does. And researchers have created fusion reactions in labs, but the question is whether we can figure out a way to make a sustainable approach where you're able to you know, do this more than just in an instant and be able to continue to have fusion reactions so that you can continue to provide energy in the form of electricity. Or uh, also, if we can figure out a way to get more energy out than what we put into it, right? If it costs you more energy to start and maintain the set of fusion reactions, then you get out of those fusion reactions, then you're operating at a net loss and it makes no sense to do it. You know, it means that you're wasting more energy than you're getting out of it and you could just bypass that whole process and use the energy you were going to use to start and maintain the the reactions to provide electricity to folks. So if we do figure it all out, that would be great. It would be transformational. 2040 seems like an incredibly ambitious and aggressive deadline to me. Um, maybe it's accurate, but because I haven't done research on fusion in a little while, Maybe the advancements we've made make that less unlikely than I feel as it is, but I'm going to need to do more research. At the moment, I would be shocked 
if a working prototype fusion reactor were up and running by 2040. Um, I think it's more likely to go well over schedule and probably way over budget, which is estimated to be at in the like 10 billion pounds range. Remember, we're talking about the UK here, so pounds rather than dollars. But maybe um, if it works, that would be amazing. I would love to see it happen. I, I just, I, I feel, I got a bad feeling about this, but I do need to do more research to see what progress we've made in fusion because maybe 2040 is a reasonable estimate. I would love to see it happen. The Great Firewall Report, which is an organization that analyzes China's censorship approach to the internet, has stated that the country's government has made some updates to the technology it uses to prevent Chinese citizens from accessing anything that the government doesn't approve of, which includes a whole laundry list of different things, including stuff that criticizes the Chinese government. And the report states that beginning on October 3rd, the Chinese systems were starting to block, quote, TLS-based censorship circumvention servers, end quote. TLS, by the way, stands for Transport Layer Security. It's a cryptographic protocol. It's used all over the place. You've used it all the time without even knowing about it. And it's essentially used to encrypt data in an effort to provide security and privacy and authentication for communications. So these servers were relying on a protocol to essentially provide cover so that a user in China would be able to access information that the government would otherwise censor. But now China has found a way to essentially fingerprint these TLS-based servers and to block access to them. And that sounds nasty for all sorts of reasons to me. Uh, it's not exactly surprising given China's historical approach to information and communication, however. There are other tools like Naive Proxy that still work right now, but the TLS-based circumvention tools are being targeted pretty effectively. And finally, one story that's been unfolding in the gaming world revolves around the team-based shooter game Overwatch 2, which has had no shortage of controversies surrounding it, and the company behind it, Activision Blizzard, is kind of a ground zero for controversy in general. Um, one controversy is that Overwatch 2 is, of course, a sequel to Overwatch, and that upon the release of Overwatch 2, Blizzard has shut down the original game, so players can't play Overwatch anymore. They're forced to play Overwatch 2. And another issue is that until recently, Blizzard was going to require all Overwatch 2 players to provide an active phone number that would be associated with their Battle.net account. And the thinking behind this was to create kind of a multi-factor authentication system to establish not just player identity, but to be able to single out cheaters and abusive players, right? Like if you have someone who's cheating in a game or they're hurling slurs around and they're just being trolling, you can flag them. And now Blizzard could not just ban that account, but ban any account associated with that phone number. So that way the player would not just be able to go out, create a new account and go right back to abusing the system and the players in it. They would be completely banned as long as they were relying on that phone number. If they switched phone numbers, then it was a different story, but obviously that's a harder thing to do. But Blizzard has since walked this back a little bit. Now anyone who was playing Overwatch with a connected Battle.net account since June 9th, 2021, will not have to submit a phone number to connect to their Battle.net account. This change will start to roll out beginning tomorrow, October 7th. However, accounts that were not connected to Battle.net 
and then have to be in order to play Overwatch 2. And all new accounts with Overwatch 2 will have to submit a phone number in order to play. However, this phone number system will not accept certain types of phone numbers, like those belonging to a voice over internet protocol line or VoIP line, or phones that use prepaid SIM cards, which means that gamers who rely on those kinds of phones will effectively get locked out of playing Overwatch 2 if they aren't in that little window of time where they get uh, an exclusion from this policy. So this disproportionately affects lower-income gamers who might be reliant upon prepaid SIM cards because they can't afford your typical phone contract. So because they don't have the type of phone that is interoperable with Blizzard's system, they can't play Overwatch 2. And this creates an accessibility issue. So it seems to me that Blizzard was trying to solve one problem, that is online abuse and cheating, and inadvertently created an accessibility problem. Also, we haven't seen yet whether Blizzard's issues, whether Blizzard's approach will actually affect abuse and cheating, if it will actually work, right? So we don't know if their solution works to solve the problem it was meant to solve, but we do know it has created a totally different problem. Fun times. All right, that's it for the news for Thursday, October 6th, 2022. I hope you all are well. If you want to suggest topics for me to cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, There are a couple different ways of doing it. One is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. It's free to use. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff. You can click on the little microphone icon and leave me a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. And by the way, shout out to Tom Valdez for sending me some really great messages. I really appreciate it, Tom. Thanks so much. You can be like Tom. Click on that little icon. Leave a message. Uh, I've got a couple of of shows that I'm going to be doing in the near future that came from those suggestions. If you don't want to do that, the other way to reach out is on Twitter, at least as long as Twitter is still a working entity. Who knows when that might change, but it's working now. So you can leave me a message and my, my handle there is tech stuff, H S W. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 